All right. Uh, just since we didn't meet last week, I wanted to just take a moment to just review the steps that we've made and perhaps maybe give some clarity, hopefully, to all of these as we uh, take the next step toward understanding why it is and how it is that we worship together, what informs the way we worship together. Um, I know you can probably uh, go to different churches, maybe different denominations, and you see different worship styles, maybe different things that go on in the worship service. And you'll probably see some worship services that have different service elements altogether, some that may sort of make you nervous. If you go to a Pentecostal church, you might get a little bit uneasy about some of the things that go on there. You might go to another denomination, and you might see some things that go on there. And so I want to spend some time tonight talking about corporate worship and, and why it is that we worship the way we do and, and how we worship and what even is worship itself. And so help to give some clarity to that, hopefully. But before we do, let's review some of the places that we've been. We've said, first of all, that Christ is the one that unified the church through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sacrificial death on the cross, has unified us and has brought us to a place where we are all included in one body. And that's globally speaking. We are one body globally. And what's happened is that because we've become members of that global body, we have been given the directive of creating local bodies, local Basically, uh, we're members of not only the global body, but this local body is just a smaller expression of the global body. That's why when we talk about membership, when we talk about being a member of the church, it's more like being recognized as a member of the church. It's, it's not so much a, a, you don't, it's not a club you're joining, you're not joining a grocery store or, or a gym or anything like that, or you don't have special access or privileges or anything like that. The, your membership in a church is really that you are recognized as a member of the body of Christ. And in this case, you're a member of the local body of Christ, of Emmanuel Baptist Church, but that is signifying your membership in the global body of Christ. Um, the reason I think this is really important, and we probably didn't touch on this, or I probably didn't touch on this back when I first said this, but I think this is really important. When people talk about security, they're... they're uh, maybe if you've ever had questions as to whether or not you're uh, saved, things like this, there's a, a host of answers that the Bible gives to that. One of those is the testimony of the members of the body of Christ around you. So the fact that you are a member of the body of Christ, the fact that other members of the body of Christ around you have validated your membership, that should signify to you, uh, at least pointing you in the right direction. Right? That there's a host of other Christians that believe they see fruit in your life that you are a Christian. That's, that's one more uh, step of, of validating your uh, membership in the body of Christ. So, how does God actually create these members? Well, obviously he's done a work on the cross of, of creating members of the body of Christ, but then how do they wake up to salvation? How is that that it happens? Well, God creates, He trains, He convicts, He directs all through His Word. So that means that the local body of Christ has an ob objective. We have to teach and preach the Word on Sunday morning in building blocks in here, at least in, as we're going through First and Second Timothy, and we're spending a great deal of time understanding what it is that Timothy has been directed to do 
when Paul has sent him to the church in Ephesus. And that is, he is to stand on the word. Timothy's young. He's going into a congregation that's got some strange things going on, some false doctrine being taught, some older people in there, and there's clearly some issues going on in Ephesus. And Paul tells him to go in, and the way that he addresses all of those things is to stand on the word and preach it and to teach it. And through that, God actually trains his people. It's through his word, and it always has been, that he creates, he trains, he corrects, he convicts. Otherwise, he cares for his sheep that way. And through the preaching and the prayer of the church, what you see is that people from diverse backgrounds, could be different ethnicities, could be different languages, could be different nations, could be whatever, they all respond to the preaching of the word. That's Paul's directive in Romans, is uh, to go where Christ has not been named and to preach the word there. And as he preaches the word of God, sharing the gospel with them, they come to faith in Christ. That's how the Lord creates his people. And he always has. So then the task of preaching and teaching the Word of God, as well as directing the mission and agenda, is funneled through certain members of the body. So you have elders who are members of the body of Christ. And their task is to preach and to teach and to otherwise shepherd. In other words, to oversee the way that preaching and teaching filters down to the pew. How, how is the, the, how, the Word that's preached... When it, as it falls on the ears of the people, how is it acted upon? How is the ministry of the church actually accomplished? That's the elder's job, to not just preach and teach, but also oversee that task of, of doing that. And the deacons, you might say, are the front row of the preaching and teaching. They're the first ones to sort of get up and serve and to show the congregation, to set a pattern for the congregation of service as they serve. And it promotes that unity and service throughout the congregation. And the congregation, we've seen, has a responsibility for taking that word that's preached and not only acting upon it, but also guarding the gospel amongst its members. And that means that all of us, as members of the body of Christ, are responsible to call out sin in the life of someone else, especially those that have, are, are struggling with repentance, calling it out and beckoning them to repentance. And then where there is evidence of unrepentance, the congregation is responsible to recognize that person not as a member of the body of Christ, as best we can tell. But then the opposite is also true. Where you recognize repentance and faith and genuine fruit in the life of someone, the congregation's responsibility is to recognize that by calling them member. That's why we ask the questions that we do on membership forms and things like that. We sit down, I sit down, and interview the person coming forward in membership. We look at their testimony of faith. We see the fruit in their life based on their testimony, and the congregation is responsible to validate that as well. It's what congregational rule or authority actually means. Obviously, the part of that process is church discipline that we've already seen, which is the confrontation of sin in the lives of the members of the congregation. Um, and obviously, what, what all of this is designed to do is to take the Word of God that has been given to us and preserve it, to protect it for not only the next generation, but also for the people of the community that are watching. Believe it or not, it's not hard for the outside world to see hypocrisy in the church, right? And, and, and frequently, this will, be, this will be what they... Now, that is not an excuse not to come to Christ, right? 
It's, it's not. But at the same time, it is a reason that people hold back or push back against the church. But it's the church's responsibility to say, where sin is identified or unrepentant sin is identified, it's also called out. It should be in our, in our lives. That's the purpose of it all. Now, as we think about all of those things, then we kind of transition a little bit into what our worship actually should look like, how, how we should uh, direct our worship, what our, what, why certain processes are in place in our worship service, and help us to think about what it is that we're doing when we gather here, especially on Sunday morning. So the first thing that we need to say is that worship, Christian worship is Trinitarian. And what we mean by that is, first of all, worship is directed to the Father. Our worship on Sunday is a proper response to God's majesty and His character. Now, this is important because as you enter into worship on Sunday morning, there's typically going to be one thing that we do at the beginning of every worship service, except uh, Tom told me this last Sunday he forgot to do it. <laughs> I didn't even remember. I didn't even recognize it. It fell, on, it fell right past my head. And that is, we do a responsive call to worship, right? All we want to do in that responsive call to worship is remind us that God has invited us in to worship Him. And it's important that we all understand that. And we're reading it together. So there is not only portion of the text that is uh, spoken by the, the person who's, who's leading it, but then there is a call for all of us to come together and actually say it together to remind ourselves as we read the words and to remind the person next to us as they read it too that God has actually invited us in. Now that's a pivotal thing for us as Christians because if God doesn't invite us to worship Him, Guess what we're not going to be able to do? Worship Him. We're only here because God has allowed us to worship Him, has allowed us into His presence. Well, then we have to say, well, well that separates us from the Jewish people, right? That was the same, the same situation is true of the Jews. They had to be invited into worship. The Holy of Holies, only one person could, was invited into that place. And if, any, if a second person came into that place, what happened to him? He was killed. Only the ark could only be dealt with in certain ways. And what happened when Uzzah reaches out his hand as it's falling to the dirt to try to catch the ark? Dead on the spot. God had not invited him to do that. And so because he took it upon his own initiative to do that, he was struck dead. But the point is that when we come together and we remind ourselves that God has invited us to worship, what we're also reminding ourselves about is the majesty and character of God. That is the very reason we are here. At its foundational spot, you and I are invited in to pay homage to the Lord. And we're going to touch on that just in a, in a minute here too. Let's read Revelation 4, 8 to 11. To just think about for a second, the, this picture of heaven that John gives, this is what is going on around the throne. Okay, so sometimes you get caught up in the imagery that John is presenting, and I, that's tempting in Revelation. But I want you instead here to just think about what is going on right now in heaven. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around within, 
Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. A common question that people ask, especially kids, is what's going to happen when we get to heaven? What's going to happen in, in eternity? Are we just always going to be standing around the throne, and are we always going to be doing what they're doing here in Revelation 4, 8-11? to I, Truth be told, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think so, but I don't know the answer to that. Here's what I do know. They seem happy about that. All right? So I can say that if that is all we're doing, it's not going to be an area of discontentment for us. All right? I can say that for sure. So I don't know what all is going to be involved in our activity in eternal life. But if this is it, I think we would be happy. What are we doing in worship? Sunday by Sunday... We're reminding ourselves we're invited in to this. You're invited to join these that are right now gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lord. At its very base, that is what we're doing together. Okay? Hold on to that. It's directed to the Father. It's centered on the Son. The only reason we are able to do what we're doing is precisely because the Lamb who is, is standing in front of the throne as though slain, He is the one who has paved the way for us to come in. He's opened the door. And it's only by Him that we're able to come in. If not for Him, we would be accursed and dead. So our worship is then centered on Jesus, who is the sacrifice on our behalf. So a large part of our worship service is going to be directed to who we are as sinners, where we lead into a prayer of confession, and following that, we remind ourselves of the pardon that has been given to us by God through Christ. And the reason is because before we hear the Word of God come to us, we want to ensure that we're all on the same page, that we are here as sinners by the grace and mercy of God. And it's through His Son that we're here. Uh, look at Revelation 5, 6-14. This is right after that. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voices, a voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So the worship transitions to the Son. And so the Son is worthy to receive all of the praise and adoration that the Father is receiving. So our worship is Trinitarian. It's directed to the Father. It is through the Son that it, is, it, it goes. And it is empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit's ministry among us is, is doing precisely this. It's reminding us in our hearts that this is what we're here for. To pay homage to the Lord and to revere the Son through whom our worship is. Our, the, the Spirit's ministry gives us the, even the ability to understand and apply the Word of God preached. Do you ever feel like, I hope this is the case, maybe it's not, but I hope it is. Do you ever feel like in the preaching, whether it's me or somebody else, that it's targeted directly at you? That's not me. That is the Spirit's work. That is what He does. He ministers among us in that way, turning our hearts to Christ. That's precisely what He does. And that is how our, our worship is in spirit and in truth. Look at what, what His ministry is among us. Um, this is Jesus talking about the Spirit's ministry in John 16, 14. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So the preaching that is, is from the Word of God as it's delivered to you is given interpretation and meaning and power by the Holy Spirit at work within you, who then apply, works to apply that to your life and reveal those things where you're like, yeah, that's me. I do that, right? He's the one speaking to you. It's not me. I, I only have maybe a few of you in my mind whenever I, I'm just kidding. That's all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying names. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, that that's the that's the Spirit's ministry among us is to take the word and and my, what I trust. And and let me back up. What does this? What does the Spirit actually preach? He preaches the word of God to you. He doesn't preach any other word. That is why I can't just take any other word and give it to you. My work throughout the week is to take the actual Bible, look at the actual words, examine all the clauses and the commas and the periods and the exclamation points and the question marks, and make sure I have all of them and understanding them and I'm representing them the way the author had intended them to be represented, making the point that he had intended to make. Because that is the point that the Spirit makes to you as he preaches the word to you. All I am trying to do is convey the words that are written in the text and then apply that to your life. James. Yeah. Quickly, because i got a lot of stuff. All right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... It's empowered by the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit's ministry that these words make any sense, that they apply, that they actually have the power to correct you and change you. Have you ever made corrections based on a sermon preached? Have you ever thought, well, I've got to repent of that. I didn't even realize that was sin. Well, of course, we all have at one point or another. That is the Spirit's work. 
So it's in, our worship is empowered by the Spirit, and we recognize the Spirit's work among us. Now, worship, the important thing that we have to understand then about worship is that it doesn't just impact that Sunday morning. That's why it carries over, and it skipped twice on me, didn't it? That's why it carries over into our entire lives. It's not just a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday thing. This is a Monday or Sunday through Saturday thing. It is something that encompasses our entire life. It's not just the singing of praise. It's not just the hearing of the word preached. But it's the effect that the ministry of the Spirit has every day of the week following that. It's the correction that He gives to us on a daily basis. And living our lives in repentance and dependence on Christ is precisely the ministry of the Spirit. So, so then, what is our worship? Worship is a delight in the beauty of God and of Christ. It's not merely a delight in the experience of worship. This is where the rubber meets the road in the culture. This is why our culture, I feel like, has totally directed worship in, in an obscure direction. Think about it just for a second. Worship has become about the feeling you get in the pew. Primarily. So, the songs are supposed to be done in a way, and believe it or not, music can be done in a way that manipulates a response out of people. Uh, it is, has been proven, they've done studies on these kinds of things, of the, the, the effect of repeated words thousands and thousands of times, the effect that that has on the people that are singing it. Sometimes you'll see praise and worship songs that will say the same word, no lie, 50 times. And you'll hear in congregations who are used to singing them, the 45th time and the 46th time, the response begins to grow. It's a cultic ritual that's very common and has been for thousands of years to manipulate the emotions in that way. There, there's many things that we can do in worship services that are designed to manipulate the emotions and the feelings. But look at what's happened in worship when that, when that takes place. When you make it about a response, and, and how many of us, let's just, let's just ask, how many of us, when we've walked out of a worship service and we've had those kinds of exalting experiences, maybe been brought to tears by the music or something like that, and we've thought to ourselves, Man, that was, that was worship. Or how many times when maybe it's been doctrinally rich, very faithful songs have been sung, maybe a very good sermon has been preached, but we've walked out and we felt like, you know, I don't have that ooey-gooey, buzzy-type feeling inside that maybe we've missed something in worship. But all that does is take the responsibility of, or the, the aim of worship and put it to the person rather than the Lord. If that's the case, if it is about the ooey-gooey buzz feeling that we get in worship and that kind of that uh, uh, exuberant kind of feeling, then how could a parent ever worship with their children next to them? Amen? Have you sat with a kid next to you in worship? I mean, distraction city. I mean, yes, you... 
you, you've heard, you've heard our, our babies crying here, our babies ooh and coo, and they, there's some noise that's happening. But if we take worship and we say it is strictly about the, the amount of attention that I can pay, it is about what I can get out of this, and it is about that ooey-gooey buzz feeling that I get from the worship service, then a parent who's got their kid next to them will never worship. And that's just not true. You are here primarily as a response to what God has done. You are paying homage to a king when you're here in worship. That is primarily what we're here to do. Now, yes, do we learn, obviously. Yes, are we corrected? Yes, are there times where we're broken over sin? And, and, and I'm not condemning those things inherently. I'm saying from a leader's perspective, you can manipulate the congregation. You can manipulate children this way, too. Well, what, what Jesus tells the, the woman at the well in Samaria is very important for how we understand worship and its direction. We worship in spirit and in truth. And so the very idea that he's communicating is, one, it's in spirit, in the sense that we are directed in the right way, directed trinitarily, we're directed to paying homage to the Lord, things like that, and it's empowered by the spirit. But second, it's true. So what, we're, what we want to do as a church body is be reminded of the truths that we believe. That is what we're doing. We're paying homage to the Lord, and in the process we're being reminded by the Lord through His Word what is true about Him and what is true about you. So you're being reminded of the salvation that you have in Christ. You're being reminded of the sin that currently dwells in your life. You're being reminded of what repentance actually is and that the Lord will receive you in repentance and forgive you. You're being reminded of all these things in worship. That is our job. That is what we're supposed to do. So my direction and my aim in worship is not about speeding up the songs or slowing down the songs or, or, or that I even really care about those things. The, the, the aim that I'm going for is our songs need to be doctrinally true. What we need to be singing needs to remind us of the truth of His Word. I don't want any error to be in there. And there have been times where we played a song that I thought, you know, I, I've looked at that song a thousand times, but now I'm hearing that word, and I don't, that sounds weird to me. And so we'll, I'll hold off doing that song. There's one, there's one sitting out there right now, all right? The, the, out in the queue that I'm like, i got to think more about what's being said there, you know? And, and so... So I want, I want to ensure that the songs that we're singing are true. Believe it or not. So I know I, we get a little bit of pushback sometimes from people who like some hymns, some particular hymns. But when I go back through some of those hymns, there's a ton of lines in some of those hymns that are a little bit gray. And Christmas hymns are some of the worst offenders. <laughs> All right? They are some of the worst offenders in that. And so there's, there's a process of saying, okay, I want doctrinally rich we want to teach the church good songs. We want to make sure that we understand them correctly and, and all of those things. And songs that, that honestly have a lot of ambiguity to them. Uh, a lot of the praise and worship songs from the 90s and 2000s have a lot of ambiguity to them. You could, sing, you could be singing them to the Lord. You could be singing them to your teenage girlfriend. Uh, they just say you. And, you, you know, who, who is you? I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, th there's a lot of those things that are in some of those songs that... that you go, you know what, if there's ambiguity, and if I have to spend the bulk of my time 
teaching you what the song actually means, throw it out. There's too many good ones, right? And so it, it's, there's, a, there's a process there, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and I know it's hard, and it's not always comfortable for the congregation, but you have to remember that what I'm really doing, I'm not here to please you. I, I, I know you know that. I, what, what, I'm, what I'm really here to do is to make sure that what we're reminded of is doctrinal truth. And that we're taught that over and over and over again, that we're reminded of all of those things. We need to be reminded of sin and that it should be repented of. We need to be reminded of forgiveness. And so we have all of those things throughout each worship service that are designed to point us to those truths. So that's, that's really what we're, what we're doing. Not trying to elicit an emotional response or praise from the congregation on how well we did or anything like that. So then, what constitutes is true worship? True worship means that uh, God has defined how we are to approach Him, and He has laid it out in His Word. So this may be a, a good segue into for, to answer to Shannon's question. Um, he has defined what true worship is. He has defined how we should approach Him, and many of the things that He has laid out in His Word are these. Prayer, the reading of Scripture, the listening to expositional preaching, or the listening to preaching and teaching from His Word. Baptizing of believers. Share the Lord's Supper together. Encourage each other and praise God in song. Give of our finances. All for the strengthening of the church. That's the reason that we come together. So the, these things He has commanded us to do. So if you think about, um, and I want to even add a couple, of the, couple to, the, to the list of uh, confessing sin to one another. He has commanded us in James to confess sin to one another as a church body, uh, which is part of what we do in the reading of a prayer of confession and actually praying a prayer of confession and then letting you take an opportunity to confess your own sins to the Lord. That's part of the process. So really, we, we don't, I don't see it as that we have the, the ability to just kind of choose willy-nilly what it is and how it is that we worship. Some churches will have services where they, the entire service is directed at, say, speaking in tongues. The Lord has not directed us anywhere in His Word that I'm aware of to worship in that way. And, and I do think there are times where uh, Paul opens for that to have happened in an orderly sort of way, but never to make provision for that of like, uh, uh, of just this is what we should have, an element of our worship service should have this. Um, so, if that's the case, then what, is, what does it mean to worship falsely? It's to worship in any way that is unauthorized. It's to worship in a way that is beyond what He has commanded. I, yes, beyond what He has commanded. Um, anything that's beyond what He has commanded should be considered false. Manipulative tactics in worship. Those are pagan by default. It makes our worship false. So in the New and Old Testament, worship is rejected by God when it's done in unauthorized ways. Look at uh, Exodus 20, verse 4. We see this in the Old Testament. I'm going to get to it here as soon as I find it. Somebody point me to the page. It's on the last page. Yeah, there it is. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Um, so 
Well, that's an Old Testament thing, right? No. What are icons in churches? You know, there, there, are, there are entire worship services that are, that are engineered and geared around iconography in churches to the point where the, the members go and actually kiss the icons in the church service. Like a painting. Like a painting. An image of the Lord or of saints or of number, not Mary or a number of different uh, icons. And they go and, they, and kiss the icons. But again, violation of directly what he's commanded to not make an image. Right? Uh, and, and worship him. And I think that's what he's talking about is an image of him. Um, Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Uh, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, that's in the priestly lineage, each took his censer and put, it, put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Do you understand? They are, they are in their, maybe in their minds, worshiping the one true God. Right? I mean, they're actually, in their minds, who, who are they directing their worship to? Whether they did it right, obviously they didn't. But they're directing it to the Lord. He didn't command them to do that. And he says, through Moses, I will be, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. Well, you might be tempted to think Nadab and Abihu were glorifying him. They were worshiping him. No, they did it in a way he had not commanded. And so he killed them. So, perhaps, we should just do this with a little bit of caution and some thought as far as how we go about worship. Um, look at Mark 7, 7. This is Jesus talking about the Pharisees, who are the elites. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as something that is commanded by God what is actually a process developed by men. So it's, it's, now it's actually the teaching is wrong. And they worship in vain because the teaching is wrong. So all that's to say that false worship we can be engaged in in a number of ways that we may not even think about. There's things in our worship service that don't belong there, or things that belong there that are not there. And teaching that is askew. It's false. And we have to pay attention to it. And as the, that's why the teachers are under a stricter judgment. And James says in James 3, not all of you should want to be teachers Right? Because it's a because we're held to it, we're the ones that led them there. All right, so it's possible to engage in false worship. All right. So how do we maintain in corporate worship this uh, um, how do we maintain unity in corporate worship in spite of our diversity and our preferences? 
Well, it's true, and I, I think uh, you all know probably better than I do that we all have preferences, our likes and our dis- dislikes in, rego- in regards to what form the worship service takes. Certain songs we like and we wish were there, but certain songs we don't like and we wish weren't there, and there's certain songs that, man, we're really enthused about. We wish they would si- we'd sing those every, every week. I think Magnificent, Marvelous, Matchless Love, every time it's played... <laughs> at, the end of it, at the end of the song, every time we're like, woo! Yeah. And every time we say that, the title of that song in the office, somebody in the office goes, woo! Just at the mention of the song. It's, it's, I know it's a, it's a favorite. And it, so there's some songs that you're like, man, that could be sung every week, or I wish we'd never sing that one again. Or, or, but the deal is, like, obviously what we're doing in worship is we, we are stirring emotion toward the Lord. We love the Lord. But you don't always feel like you love the Lord. Come on. There's a lot of times, as a pastor even, where you come in on Sunday and you're like, man, this is hard. And I know it's that way. As a member, I've been in the pew on Sunday. And sometimes it's difficult. And so we are reminded in, this, in spirit and in truth, we, as we're reminded of those doctrines, as we do sing songs, even the songs that are dearest to us, that we love the most, that is not only reminding us of the doctrine that we hold so dear, but is also stimulating our thoughts, our emotions, and our desires toward the Lord. And it should be. And it should scare us if after all of that, after all of the doctrine, after understanding His Word and what He's done for us, after all the prayers and the singing, if there's absolutely no emotion there, I don't mean every, I don't mean any one Sunday. I mean, if Sunday after Sunday, it's not there. It should raise questions in our mind. If every Sunday we're bored, look, we have an hour and a half worship service. And I know for some, that's long, hour and a half. I get it. But just take a trip with me overseas to an island on Lake Victoria as I'm preaching to Africans, my sermon takes twice as long. Just think about that. I know some of you are going, oh my word, twice as long, because I'm preaching in English and then it's translated. Twice as long. And at the end, they're asking, go to the next chapter. They're starving for the word. Yes. And then after I sit down, they're like, okay, we're going to close this worship service out. And that means in two hours. And then we're going to eat together. And these people walk from all over just to hear the Word of God preached. And they want it more and more and more and more as much as you can possibly give. A room full of pastors sat for eight hours a day for five straight days as I taught through Matthew. And that is not my teaching, as you well know. That is their hunger for the Word. So it should, it should disturb us more than a little. That it's difficult for us to make it. Our appetite should be increased. And we should be pushing in that direction for our appetite to increase. Because that's... Worship, and obviously sometimes it's not according to our preferences, but how should we deal with that when it's not exactly the way we like it? Well, one, we should submit to each other. 
We're called to submit to each other for the sake of Christ. We're going to talk about that this Sunday. Called to love each other, to serve each other. We should submit to each other. We should shift our understanding from me to we. I'm going to go through these at a relatively quick clip. So, we're going to sh- We should shift our understanding from me to we. Um, instead of only thinking about the fact that I don't like that song, maybe consider somebody else does. And in in all honesty, a lot of times churches are geared towards a congregation that might be a little bit younger. And there's a reason for that that's not all bad. There is a bad, there is a bad motivation there, which is, well, we, we want a lot of younger people in here to, you know, rejuvenate the place or things like that. There, that's probably some not great motivations. But some good motivations is, who are the ones that have spent the least amount of time in the Word, the least amount of time in church, and who need the most training? Typically, that is the younger generations. So those songs are directed toward them to help them understand doctrine, to teach them doctrine. A lot of the ministry of the church is geared that way. What happens, though, a lot of times in churches is that we kind of grow up with our parents making the decisions in the church and being the decision makers and getting everything the way they wanted. And then when we turn 60, now it's our turn. Our parents are dead and it's our turn. We're going to do things the way we want. But it's precisely the opposite in Scripture. And in all actuality, what's happening is as we become more and more like Christ, the longer we spend in His Word, our desire should be to serve, not to be served. So it should be the opposite. As we get older, and as we, we learn more of the Word and grow to more, learn more about Him, our desire should be to serve the generations under us coming up, handing off those truths to them. So we transition from me to we. But begin approaching Sunday morning with a sense of your need for Christ. Often what happens when we grow bored in worship or when we have little appetite when we walk in the door, it's due to how much time we spent prior to getting here in the Word. How much time we spent prior to coming to Sunday even thinking about Christ. Preparing our hearts to actually worship. If you come in cold, well, you're going to be, you should expect to just, kind of have the service is the only thing that's going to warm your heart toward the Lord. On the flip side, if you spend time beforehand in prayer and in the Word, maybe even with your family, then it's going to be a different worship experience coming in because your heart is already primed. The pump is already there. I'm honestly, and, and it's the difficulty of being a pastor is I'm not in with my family on Sunday morning. I'm I'm here typically about 6 o'clock in the morning, and that's part of the reason why. It's very difficult to, to get up here and preach cold. And I've done it, believe me, it's happened. But it's difficult. And so getting here at 6 in the morning and praying and, and fine-tuning even parts of the sermon and thinking through all the things that we're doing and praying over those things, it takes time and it's part of warming up the heart before worship, and it's important. And I think part of our coldness in the service might be due in large part to that. So how does that corporate worship service actually serve as a platform for the unity of the church? Well, for one, corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. So as we come together and as we sing praises and as we offer our sacrifice of praise to God, we present to the world and to anyone who's here a unified front. 
we agree on the doctrine that is presented. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are there in agreement over what this cup signifies, over what the bread signifies. So we, we display our God-glorifying unity. We help each other to worship. We sing loudly. And part of what that, what that you know, uh, I hear a lot of times, you know, we, the, we, well, we sing loudly because we knew the song. Why don't you play some songs we know? <laughs> That's also part of the reason, hopefully you're seeing on your weekly email, that we put out that, the links to all the YouTube videos of the newest songs that are coming out. Learn them. Put them in your car. If you got Apple Music or Spotify or something, you know, throw it on in your car or buy the CD or something like that. My kids, some of, my youngest kid can't, can't read very well. But she knows all the songs. You just play them in the car. So I hold her, and she's singing them in my ear. She's not a believer yet. And she knows the songs. And that's part of how we get to know what the songs are. We're beginning to uh, focus on playing those songs in the children's building while we're in here worshiping. The younger kids who are in the nursery, playing those in there on the CD so that when they get in here, they kind of already know some of the songs that are being sung. They're a little bit more familiar to them. But play those for your kids. Help them to learn those songs so they can, they can sing them and they grow to understand what they are. We sing them loudly for each other. I'm reminded of the truths of the doctrines that we're singing by the people that are singing off-key around me because I'm one of you. I'm singing right there off-key with you and we're reminding each other of the truth that we're coming here to celebrate. After church, we go to our small groups. We discuss the application of the sermon each week, those things can be really helpful for us. We regularly take the Lord's Supper and we take it seriously. We uh, express joy to each other during the service with amens. You can speak. It's okay. You can, you can clap if you like a song, if you agree with the message that's being. You can do that. That's okay. And I, we laugh all the time because every time there's like the magnificent, marvelous, magic love, da 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 and everybody goes, woo! And then they kind of feel like, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> or there's a song that you particularly want to amen and you get the half clapper the one that's like nobody else huh okay I don't <laughs> and just sort of backs down if you're gonna clap own it all right just clap uh <laughs> and the rest of us will join you but it's it's okay we express joy for the things that we're hearing and it, and it helps others to to express the same kind of joy um so all of those things are, are helpful to each other as we worship. They edify each other. They, they preach to each other. Your claps, your amens, your whoops, they preach to each other. They double down on that message. And that's okay. That's great. Um, corporate worship is edifying. When we sing on Sunday morning, or when we read scripture, we pray, we're communicating not only to God, but also to one another. It, it helps one another. Finally, or am I finally? Yeah, I'm finally. Corporate worship is a taste of heaven. A few weeks ago, I gave an illustration in, in the book of Matthew of us as a community of people, kind of how that should be pictured of sort of a wartime atmosphere where we're wandering through the woods, and we find a community of people who actually speak our language and remind us of things that we should remember and know. And when we come here together and we hear those songs being sung, whether we know the song or not, there should be a familiarity to them. 
that I know, I know the truth that's being spoken here. That truth that's spoken in the sermon, in the prayers, in the songs, that should be the thing that stirs our hearts. Not the way the notes are played, but the, the message that is there in the words being spoken or sung. That is the thing that should warm our hearts. And the fact that across the room, Susie Q is singing the same song that Johnny Do-Gooder is singing, and I don't know. Those things should warm our heart knowing that I'm not alone in this. There is a host of people around me singing these same songs. But then as we turn to the Word, and as we look at Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, what we see there is we're really not alone. We're also surrounded by a heavenly host that's doing the same thing day and night and never ceases to give praise. Then as we read Hebrews, we're reminded that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses too who have died before us who are also under the altar singing praises to the Lord as well. You're part of a long history. What we're here to do is not entertain you. That is, that is so beneath what we are about as a church body. It is not at all about entertainment. There's something that has happened in the last however many years that we have been so inundated with entertainment. That's what we expect everyone else to do. And what we've been told time and again with those commercials that interrupt the TV show every seven minutes or whatever it is, is that it's your job, one that's in front of me, whether that's a TV screen or a preacher, it's your job to entertain or engage me and to keep me from falling asleep. Biblically, that's not true. Your attention to the Word is in between your own ears. It is your responsibility to put your eyes on the text and engage your heart. That is between you and the Lord. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You, you remember this sermon. You know he didn't make it through the sermon. Sermon, if it was preached in its totality, I think would be something around an hour and 15 minutes. I believe is what people have said. Hour and 15 minutes. Jonathan Edwards notoriously preached in a monotone, low voice. Purposefully. Because he thought to be excited about the word was to engage the flesh. His words, not mine. So he preached it slowly. It would have been an hour and 15 minutes. No backs on the pews. So if you fell asleep, Everyone knew. All right? Didn't make it through. Halfway through the sermon, people are falling out in tears in conviction of sin. What changed? Did the word preached change? Content of the message change? I could stand up there and preach sinners in the hands of an angry God today, probably, in a slow, monotone voice, and maybe every American in the room would be asleep. Maybe our hearts changed. 
Questions? Comments? Charlie. I see that hand. God bless you. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm just kidding. Nothing. Go ahead. Just me making a joke about a revival. Go ahead. Probably. Yes. I don't think so. I think Paul, he's talking about Paul in Colossians, says, uh, singing, it's Colossians 3, I believe it is, Psalms and hymns, sing, 316, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our hearts, making melody to the Lord. Um, and I think Paul's intention that Excuse me. His intention there is to is to say to us, um, the singing of the church should be biblical. Um, so the salt the psalter is. Paul would have known those psalms and the tune to those psalms because they would have sung them in the temple. Many of them, especially, and uh, hymns and spiritual songs. There's passages of scripture like we'll read one this week in Philippians two that comes across in the way it's written, it seems like it's a hymn of the first church, of the first century church, that they created that's just a reminder of the doctrine of Christ, um, that he was in the form of God and did not see equality of God, the thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That, that whole thing seems to be some type of first century hymn of some sort, and there's several of those throughout the New Testament. So it, it's potential that they're already starting to write hymns and songs about Christ and exalting him by name. And then um, spiritual songs would be, I think, things along those same lines that are directed and empowered by the Spirit. And I think it's kind of a, uh, what is it? Um, uh, I'll think of the word for it, where it's three things that kind of make up a whole, that are sort of parts of the whole. I can, I'm embarrassed that I don't know the word now. Sorry. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, but I think that's what he's, he's getting at. So I think he's talking about just, it needs to be doctrinally, Doctrinally true um, worship, worship song. <laughs> yeah, triumvirate. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. I'll think of it. Next key. Next key. Next key. Next key. Check me on that. The next key. Go ahead. Sorry. S Y N E C T O C H E. The next key, I think. I might have it. I might, ha I might not be right. Sorry. <laughs> I, in my head, I'm just I'm dwelling on that word. That's all I'm thinking about. You know, so, question. Any other questions? Charlie. Yeah. Manipulation. Yeah. 
I think that's right. Um, so Charlie makes mention of the Second Great Awakening, which was Charles Finney, um, sort of engineered, quote unquote, the Second Great Awakening as a means of reproducing the First Great Awakening. That was the goal. Um, so there was a lot involved in that. Um, it's where altar calls come from, by the way. Just so you know, um, that's where they come from. It's Charles Finney. Charles Finney. Uh, you can look up his doctrine. Likely a heretic, likely not a Christian. Had a waiting bench over here where people were anxious, um, manipulated people's emotions, uh, wanted to give them a token of their following of Christ, which was their coming down front. Again, nowhere directed in Scripture to do that. Nowhere. Not one place. How is it that you come to know Christ? How is it that you come to Christ in salvation? Walking down front? Repenting of your sins and following Christ. But you can come down front and get a token of your receipt into the kingdom. You walk down front. You join the church. How do you join the church? Through baptism. That's how you join the church. So, yeah, figure of speech, which is, which is, in, which in part uh, is made to represent the whole. I was right. Okay, good. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Sorry, I'm, na- I'm, na- I'm back. I'm back with us. All right, I'm here. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. <laughs> Trains run off the rails. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in spirit and in truth. Um, the, those two words together, they sort of make up, a, they're parts that make up a whole, a whole idea. They, they're two things that make up one, communicating one idea. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, three things that communicate one idea. Could be two, could be, yep. Worship in spirit and in truth. It's two things that, that really are speaking to the same thing. Three things that are speaking to the same thing. Make parts of the whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here. We're grateful to understand worship. We're grateful to study your word and to have it speak to us. Um, We pray that everything that's said here be received in the spirit that it's intended. That as we think about our worship together, that it would edify us, that it would correct us, that it would train us in righteousness, that we would come to worship on Sunday with our hearts ready, our hearts prepared to sing songs of praise to you, to pay homage to you to not expect in return that we might be lifted high up on a mountaintop, but instead that we would sing true songs, that we would remind ourselves of what has happened in Christ, that we have been, though we were dead, have been bought back from the grave by you through the blood of your Son. If that would preach a sermon to us, that would sing, that would cause our hearts to sing uh, the truth that's represented on the screens in front of us, Pray that you would do this in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.